It's the economy, stupid, is that irritating famous quote often attributed to President Bill Clinton, but in fact coined by his campaign strategist, James Carville. Carville was right, but we've all been pretty stupid about the economy. So stupid, in fact, that one government agency put a gag order on a staffer and prohibited him from discussing anything having to do with economics. Get the details in this episode of Dave the Planet. The presidential election in 2024 is probably the most important election in our country's history. You're looking at a Biden-Trump rematch that two-thirds of the country doesn't want. I'm Dave Gardner. I'm running for president. The billionaire class has been taking everything and leaving everybody else to fight for the scraps. You're right to talk about economic growth and restoring that American dream. Gross domestic product has now become a fetish. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your fairy tales of eternal economic growth. We humans have outgrown our planet. Is growth really making us richer or is it making us poorer? We've got to scale back. We need people to reimagine a lifestyle which requires much less energy and material. Didn't Elon Musk actually say one of the biggest issues that we're facing is underpopulation? Let's not be afraid to talk about overpopulation because it is not about taking rights away from people. It is about giving opportunities to women, children, and future generations. All right, well, welcome to another episode of Dave the Planet, the podcast chronicling my campaign for U.S. president and digging into the issues that caused me to run. When people say it's the economy, stupid, they mean that no one gets elected or reelected without promising and delivering robust economic growth. And everything people assume that brings, good paying jobs, a chicken in every pot, and few financial hardships. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm the only candidate for any office in the U.S. promising to shrink the economy. If that baffles you, stick around and find out why. Now, if you want to dig even deeper, visit DaveThePlanet2024.com slash economy. At the bottom of the summary of my economic policy agenda, you'll find many valuable links. And also check out links in the show notes for this episode. Uh, they include episode 42 of the Growth Busters podcast and episode 204 of the Conversation Earth radio series and podcast, both of which featured the gentleman I'm talking to today. We're recording this, by the way, on November 7th of 2023, and I am thrilled to be talking to Brian Check. Brian, you probably know you're one of my heroes. Well, thanks, Dave. I mean, there's a lot of mutual admiration and respect, I know, and thank you for running for office. Well, you're welcome. It's even more trouble than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate the, the gratitude. But let's share a little bit about, about you, Brian. You're author of the brand new book, Gag Ordered No More, The 800-Pound Gorilla in the U.S. Government. But you also authored uh, earlier in your career, Supply Shock, Economic Growth at the Crossroads and the Steady State Solution. And you authored Shoveling Fuel for a Runaway Train, Errant Economists, Shameful Spenders, and a Plan to Stop Them All. Uh, that was the book that first introduced me to you. And then I think you also wrote The Endangered Species Act, History, Conservation, Biology, and Public Policy, right? Yes. Brian worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for about 20 years, and he also, very importantly, founded and is 
Executive Director of the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy. So, Brian, pretty excited about this book. I was going to sit down and skim it because I didn't want to keep you waiting for me to finish the book before we talked, but I couldn't skim it. Uh, I had to read every word. And what that means is I haven't finished it yet. I've just gotten into part two, but uh, everything in part one, uh, I'm eating up. And I think maybe just the casual listener or reader out there, maybe this isn't a book for them. I mean, it's not like a John Grisham novel, but it, but I think if anyone's slightly interested in uh, how our government works, how our economy works, and especially uh, what the prospects are for their children to have a bright future, then I think this is an important book. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about it. Yeah, and uh, it's definitely not a John Grisham novel. There, we did have a, a reviewer compare it to a Kurt Vonnegut novel, though I may want to point out, you know, there's kind of almost uh, dystopia come to life at this agency I work for, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, and there are some pretty good tales. I don't think there's any uh, sex in, in it, though. I haven't gotten to any sex yet. No, no. Okay. <laughs> I didn't need that in there. <laughs> but some people might think the economy is sexy. So tell us a little bit brief, briefly about your work at the Fish and Wildlife Service and and how you came to be gagged. Okay, so I was hired in 1999 as the first conservation biologist by that title in the history of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, you know, I want to make too much out of that, but but they made, they seemed to want to make kind of a big deal of that at the time. It was right on the heels of the National Wildlife Refuge System Improvement Act of 1997. The Refuge Improvement Act has provided a unified mission for all of the 500 and at the time about 540 some national wildlife refuges. It provided a philosophical backdrop, a philosophical foundation for how the refuge system was to be managed pursuant to the the wildlife first principle as it came to be known. And it called for a lot of conservation biology in practice. And for, for those out there who aren't that familiar with that term, is sort of a phase of evolution past the old hook and bullet, as we used to call it, hook and bullet wildlife management, hook and bullet, because it was focused so much on hunting and fishing activities and species. And conservation biology then became more about the conservation of biodiversity at large. Mm-hmm. And uh, it fit my curriculum very well. Uh, I had just finished off my Ph.D. research, as you know, Dave, at the University of Arizona. And I had been looking at the causes of species endangerment in the United States as part of this policy analysis. And uh, it struck me one day as I was creating this database of all of the federally listed species and the reasons for their demise. The reasons were like a who's who of the American economy. And yet at the same time, I kept hearing this this political rhetoric out there because it was already building up to the 2000 elections, you know, and the rhetoric that uh, there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. And 
that is what led me eventually into the gag orders because my conclusions based not only from that empirical evidence about the causes of endangerment, but also robust theoretical foundations for there being a fundamental conflict between growing the economy and conserving biodiversity. And I tried to bring that that to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as something that we would have to message out to the public if we ever really wanted to make solid progress in conservation. So are you, are you saying that uh, all of the hard work that's being done out there uh, in the interest of biodiversity, much of it is good work, and some of it is actually maybe effective, are, but you're saying that it's going to be a one foot forward and two feet back as long as we're growing our economy. Exactly. You know, the old battles versus the war metaphor works perfectly here. We're winning some battles and people are trying their best. They're really smart, uh, well-established, expert wildlife biologists in the field and managers and agencies there. Some of them are doing great work and they're winning some battles here now. But we are losing the war, the conservation war, to use that metaphor, as long as GDP growth is the overriding domestic policy goal. And I know I want to circle back to getting to the gag order, but uh, but you've given me a couple of rabbit holes I want to go down, not too deeply maybe, but because it's more than just biodiversity. You wrote in the book, climate change is the most ominous challenge. But long before climate change, we were besieged with a long list of daunting problems like water shortages, soil erosion, and biodiversity loss. None of these problems has gone away. In fact, each one has intensified in lockstep with GDP. Some people, now now my words, some people may think, well, that's the environment. That's too bad, but at least I have my job, a roof over my head, food on the table. What would you say to that? Well, I wish there was more awareness out there in the public that every job out there is ultimately founded upon a healthy environment because the whole economy starts at this trophic base. And I want to introduce that term early on in the conversation. Of all of the principles of ecology, the principle of trophic levels, I think is most relevant. And trophic levels are simply uh, the reflect the structure in the economy of nature where you have plants at the base and then consumers that eat those plants and then secondary consumers that eat the, the primary consumers. And it's the same with the human economy. You don't have any economic activity at all unless you have at that base the agricultural production that allows for everyone just to survive And then the agricultural surplus that frees the hands, you might say, frees the hands for the division of labor into all of those other sectors. So you're saying the environment isn't something separate. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. yeah. And and the, the demise of biodiversity as a function of the human economy growing so out of hand, that's a real warning sign. To us as humans, Homo sapiens, you know, we're part of that, the economy of nature at large. And it's very sick, we could say, because of the overgrowth of the human species. But 
Robust economic growth is the most universal public policy goal out there, and it's never questioned. You're saying that the world has got it wrong. Well, you know that we if can, you don't, I will. <laughs> well, I know you will, and you're right, and it's it is wrong. Now, I think it probably helps to cut a little bit of slack to politicians of yesteryear and and publics of and by yesteryear, I really mean yester century, right? Yeah. Uh, I think growth was a great goal for a lot of parts of the earth, a lot of countries, you know, a lot of cultures a lot of societies through much of the 20th century. But then the signs arose in the latter part of the, no later than the latter part of the 20th century. And as you know, uh, in certain parts of the world, it became evident a century earlier even, mm -hmm. uh, like with John Stuart Mill's writings from uh, England, you know, in the late 19th century already, it was evident that the economy was causing more problems than it solved in some metropolitan areas like London. But now it's more of a planetary crisis that the economy is way beyond the optimum size for human well-being and for, you know, certainly for future well-being. And yet every uh, solution for, especially for the climate crisis, is required to not uh, hamper economic growth. If it's going to hamper economic growth, then it's off the table. So uh, to circle back to your uh, fish and wildlife experience, so here you get this great job where you, it's actually looks like a part of your duty, right, to yeah. spread the word about this conflict between in environmental integrity and uh, economic growth. So you're like in hog heaven for yeah. a little while anyway. Mm -hmm. That's right. What happened? Yeah, uh, you hit the nail on the head. I was, I, when I first saw that, that job announcement, I thought to myself, this is it. This is why I spent all that time and money. You know, I didn't want to leave the field. I had great field work jobs prior mm -hmm. to uh, going back to school for a Ph.D., which I did because I wanted to make a difference in conservation policy at the national level. And, and I didn't know that, that the Refuge Improvement Act was going to be passed in 1997 when I started my dissertation work in about 94. So it was sort of a, you know, serendipitous that that political activity occurred while I was doing all this research. And that vacancy announcement came out right when I was uh, really looking. Uh, I was spending about a third of my time applying for jobs and maybe another third of my time doing this uh, kind of a nasty job out in the field, <laughs> moving rattlesnakes around that were being threatened by the development of this golf course. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, another third of the time, yeah, well, yeah, I was finishing off those two books, the Shoveling Fuel for a Runaway Train book and the Endangered Species Act book. But when I saw that, that vacancy announcement come out, as I wrote about in Gag Order No More, you know, it was composed, first of all, just beautifully. It, it's almost as if Aldo Leopold might have composed such a, a position description. And it was very forward thinking. It was big picture, long term, you know, like your office holding would be big picture, long-term thinking. 
and yeah, it after they they being the directorate of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service after they began to see what that big picture long term thinking implied and entailed in terms of economic policy, then the gag orders began. Why? Well, that's, first of all, we'll never know all of the motives of every player involved. It does seem like one of the primary players involved certainly at some point in time became very concerned about his prospects for becoming appointed as the director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so, and at the same time, I was active in not only in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but in the Wildlife Society, the Ecological Society of America, the Society for Conservation Biology, etc., in uh, advancing this position on economic growth that was designed to refute that you know, that political rhetoric that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. And that it was a bit of a going thing there for a while. I mean, it was one of the, the, the biggest issues being discussed in those scientific professional societies. We were knocking at the doors of the big environmental organizations. They were starting to have to pay attention And I think that this potential director feared some sort of chastisement up on the hill, potentially risking his Senate confirmation. Well, yeah, because why would someone who, why would an administration that was in office because of its promise of robust economic growth, why would they appoint anybody who was having conversations about reality, (laughs) which is completely the opposite of that? Yeah. And, you know, it's not like you were from from reading your book. The sense I get is that you were pretty you're you've been persistent, but you weren't an annoyance. You were pretty strategic and careful about the way you were trying to give this subject the daylight that it really needed, whether it was at the, uh, you know, at the Fish and Wildlife Service or in those other organizations. You didn't come off as a nutcase, I don't think. Yeah, um I was definitely strategic. I mean, I was constantly strategizing about how to advance that position on economic growth and stuff and how to, how to get us in the agency into the business of educating the public about it. You know, I maybe was a little aggressive at times, certainly more aggressive than that directorate was accustomed to. I was just talking to a fellow here at the Wildlife Society Conference in Louisville, Kentucky where I am right now. Having driven here, by the way, Dave, since I pretty much swore off flying a few years ago. Anyway, the the fellow was lamenting the levels of timidity, the timidness, if that's the proper, how timid our civil service is. And frankly, there are probably a lot of uh, bureaucrats and civil servants are timid because they're afraid of having a a really hamstrung career if they say anything that's in any way controversial. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to get this book out. 
I have a copy right here. I got to just put it up here so people can see the cover. Great. <laughs> found grill on the table with the GDP on the shirt, you know, and the fish and wildlife leader up there, pay, not paying any attention to it. And, and most bureaucrats not. And then one guy there gagged that that's me in this case. And we'll never know how many others there were out there that tried to speak truth to power about limits to growth and the conflict between growth and all these other really important goals, policy goals and social uh, goals. There certainly have been many gag orders that have gone unnoticed by their nature. By the nature of a gag order, you don't hear about them, except for these cases where someone like myself goes so far as to quit the agency early, sacrificing a, like a full retirement package, for example, <laughs> and, other, and other career you know, um, aspects. And then also is so disappointed in that experience and even angry about it to some degree that they go so far as to write a book <laughs> to provide the sordid tales and I want to editorialize here a little bit. I mean, your you know your book is about your twenty year adventures at the Fish and Wildlife Service, but this is a you know your message needed to be uh, you know it needed to be a message that was discussed at the, among the Council of Economic Advisors uh, at cabinet meetings. It needed to really be uh, infiltrating public policy of all types. Uh, yes. And that's one reason why I'm really, I'm not just a big fish and wildlife guy. Uh, you know, I'm interested in all of the the federal policies that are going to either give our kids a dead planet or a bright future. And and you're talking in this book about the Fish and Wildlife Service, but it really applies so broadly at, at the federal level. Absolutely. And one one entire chapter in this book is essentially a conversation of the president and cabinet. And uh, it doesn't have every member uh, participating. They're all there. But the primary uh, participants include the Secretary of the Interior, who has been fed the information by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service people. Who, it, When you think about who's got responsibility to help raise awareness of the perils of economic growth, it once again, it ought to start at that foundation where it's so evident that growth is causing problems right now and has been for decades. Biodiversity loss, pollution problems, including some really insidious ones, you know, like PFAS, for example. And then, of course, global heating. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't take... Uh, any kind of rocket science to figure out that the greenhouse gas forcing is primarily a function of GDP in a 90% fossil fuel economy. And when the goal is growth, it, there's not going to be a wholesale replacement of the fossil fuel sector with renewable sectors. No, there's going to be more of both. In, in all kinds of energy, in fact, all the, the stops will be pulled out for nuclear and fossil and wind and solar and hydro. Yeah, good points. And, in, you know, in that section of the book where you fantasized about this cabinet meeting, you were fantasizing about, you know, one 
person in the room having the knowledge and the courage to uh, speak the truth about that. But what if, what if the president <laughs> had the knowledge and the courage to, to speak about that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the reasons that, that a lot of us are so enthusiastic about you running, Dave, because we have to have somebody that's out there telling it like it is about limits to growth and the need for, a, you know, you have three basic alternatives, growth, degrowth, or the steady state economy. And, you know, you can have degrowth toward a, a lower level steady state economy to make it more sustainable. But in any event, we have to, at, at a very minimum, have a candidate that can deliver the message about the trade-offs between growth and so many other really important things and make the point that growth is not sustainable. And the further we push that GDP, the more uh, dire consequences we're causing. And, you know, this is a good point for me to just mention that, uh, uh, you know, I'm looking to smart people like you to uh, advise me during my campaign, and I'll be looking for you to advise me in the White House after my astonishing victory in November 2024. <laughs> um, well, I'll, be, and in I'll fact, be ready and waiting. <laughs> uh, you know, you would, I would want you to be, if you, if, if you didn't want to be on the cabinet, and I know you might want to run Fish and Wildlife, I would want you to be on the Council of Economic Advisors. But I want to be clear that I'm, you know, my uh, agenda is, uh, is that we do have to contract the scale of the human enterprise globally, and that includes the scale of the human enterprise in the United States, and that means population and economy. So we have to contract the economy, but not forever. We just need to get it back to a, a level where we're, where we're not killing the planet, and then we would want a steady state economy. And I think that's pretty much, I think we're pretty much in sync about that, are we not? We are. You know, at, at Cassie for some years there, we were, part of our strategy was one paradigm shift at a time. <laughs> so we weren't very uh, passionately out there pitching a degrowth program. But the longer we wait, the more we're going to need degrowth. And I think we are now to that point. We have adopted the slogan in a lot of our work, degrowth toward the steady state economy. Yeah. And, you know, and for those out there who wonder how we get to that point, it's based largely in the that body of science called ecological footprint analysis that tells us we're in a, a state of overshoot, this level of economy. We're at about a $100 trillion global economy in 2020 real dollars, about $100 trillion. And that is so unsustainable that overshoot day, as they calculate at the Global Footprint Network, is backed up all the way into August now, or July. July, yeah. July. Oh. Pretty so, much that means we're engaged in two-planet living, even though we've just got the one planet to support us. Yeah. And Americans are, I forgot what the figure is there. It's more like, you know, dozen planet living or with the per capita consumption that Americans have. I don't want to lambast any particular country, but frankly, the ones that are most responsible for overshoot are tend to be the ones with the greatest consumption levels, of course. Sure. 
at least per capita, they're, they're more responsible. And so, you know, if any of this uh, talk about limits to growth and the complete impossibility of uh, endless economic growth, if it's new to, to somebody who's uh, watching or listening to this podcast, uh, you know, I encourage you to, uh, to check out the links. And, you know, it occurs to me that I, one episode of that Conversation Earth radio series I did was called Welcome to Overshoot, Have a Nice Day. And it's a pretty good primer on exactly what you're talking about, overshoot. And some of the smartest people on the planet were included in that special, including you, Brian. You know what? I'd like to invite you to share just a little bit of the drama that's in, in the book. And I thought there was this uh, great tale that I really enjoyed reading about that you called the Carter Incident. Yeah. Would you be up for maybe give, telling us about that incident? Sure, sure. So uh, that was about 2011, and it was in the midst of what uh, the service was calling the Conserving the Future campaign, which was a, a visioning exercise for what the Fish and Wildlife Service was going to focus on and prioritize and communicate about and things like that. And uh, as part of that, there was this thing called the Bold Ideas Forum, where fish and wildlife people in particular were encouraged to propose their bold ideas for uh, what the service should be prioritizing going forward. Now, concurrently with that Bold Ideas Forum, there were some events at the National Conservation Training Center in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And one of those was the 40th anniversary of the establishment of Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or may, maybe it was the 50th. In any event, Jimmy Carter was the keynote speaker. And I went to it, and I went prepared with something related to the Conserving the Future visioning and the Bold Ideas Forum. But it was, going back to your earlier point, it wasn't crazy. I wasn't saying, President Carter, would you help us establish a steady state or anything like that? You know, it was simply a question about what we should be doing to help raise awareness about limits to growth and whether or not he would consider helping us to mm -hmm. do so. And I think that would have been a game changer. This was a key audience. A lot of the leadership of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was there and some other agencies as well. And Jimmy Carter, of all the presidents, was the one that knew the most and that was concerned the most about limits to growth. Well, all right. So I raised my hand after his talk and uh, and I had I had the question all prepared. So I wasn't going to waste anybody's time. And the, the MC. He looked straight at me, and and then he looked to somebody else and, and took their question and, and looked straight at me again as I had my hand raised and looked somewhere else and took their question. And finally, I raised like a, a white piece of paper so that it was obvious, couldn't miss me. And finally, one of the helpers had brought the mic to me, and I'm thinking, I'm finally going to have this opportunity we're going to have this opportunity for President Carter to weigh in on this 800-pound gorilla that Fish and Wildlife has been ignoring. And right when 
I got the mic in my hand. The MC, Jay Slack was his name. He kind of abruptly stepped up to the podium. He had been about six feet behind presently. He swooped in there <laughs> and he said, that's all, folks. You know, I'm paraphrasing. He said, you know, this has been a great session. Now we're going to conclude and take a break or whatever. That was the end of it. And so they turned the mics off and and President Carter then came down the side aisle with an entourage of security primarily, but also some uh, fish and wildlife leadership. And I just assumed they were going to be milling around in the uh, foyer, uh, foyer out behind the back doors. So I filed in behind them so I could get a chance to ask him the question out there. But they proceeded into a hallway that, unbeknownst to me, uh, went down to where a limousine was waiting for, for him. And, uh, and I could see the, the opportunity to ask him this slipping away, you know, really rapidly. And so I said, uh, President Carter, he was like one flight of, of stairs below. And uh, immediately this guy right in front of me turned around and, and blocked my path. And uh, this uh, fellow turned out to be a special agent for the Fish and Wildlife Service. The bogus name, you know, it wasn't his real name, but Officer Toomey was the name that was Yeah. And so there was a big incident report that got written up about it. The mere fact that I had stepped into that stairwell that supposedly no one else was supposed to enter and uh, anyway, they made a, a mountain out of a molehill, and uh, that went into my file. And, and I remember uh, one of the gag ordering chiefs in the hierarchy telling me later, she said, you know, you're never going to get a chance to talk with President Carter because of evidently because of this file that this officer Toomey wrote up, which gets shared with the Secret Service or whatever. He was on detail with other officers from Secret Service, evidently. And that was the Carter incident. And, and it became well known about, you know, to uh, a lot of the people in the Fish and Wildlife Service who were well aware of the, uh, in the Bold Ideas Forum, the idea to raise public awareness of the trade-off, the conflict between growth and conservation. That was the winning idea, Dave. <laughs> might encourage you uh as a politician, that actually won the Bold Ideas Forum. But that Bold Ideas Forum ran until Earth Day, that spring of, of 2011, and it was immediately wiped off the Internet. The cache of it wasn't even available for years. Now, it, now you can use Wayback or whatever it's called to track down stuff that had been on the internet long ago, and, and you can find it there. So all of this was, was interrelated. The Carter incident, the visioning exercise of the Fish and Wildlife Service, the gag orders, and then out of that, I ended up getting a suspension. And as I recall, I think that's the one that resulted in the two-week suspension, which is the most you can, the longest period of time you can be suspended before you're allowed to go before the Merit System Protection Board. So you really had become, by then, you had become a pariah. Your last years at the service, you were 
Well, I'm guessing they put you in a dark corner office as far away from everything as they could and tried to keep you quiet. I literally got the office that people up on that sixth floor called the closet. (laughs) (laughs) Little office with no windows. Yeah, stuffy, small. Yeah, it was. And they hoped you would quit. They hoped I would quit. Yeah. And, uh, And then eventually I was told, you know, there are a lot of informal, there's a lot of informal censorship that goes on and disciplinary action informal that goes on. And it doesn't become part of the public record because it's provided verbally. And uh, so so one very draconian gag order that I got was provided in an office with a closed door with the chief prohibiting me from even talking with anyone about anything. Not the one that you had alluded to earlier where I wasn't allowed to say anything about or pertaining to economics. That was an earlier gag. Or this one was about anything to anyone without first getting permission from this chief. That is oh my hard. God. Yeah. yeah. And that wow. And it was not put in writing, but it was very clear that there would have been repercussions if I didn't follow that. It was very, very difficult to adhere to. Well, I'm really sorry to hear this uh, this tale, but it's a, it's a fascinating book, and uh, ev- you know everything you have been doing to bring attention to the folly of uh, chasing uh, everlasting GDP growth is so appreciated, so valuable, and I guess we can thank those horrible people in charge at Fish and Wildlife that did this to you for returning you to full-time work at the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy maybe 10 years before you might have. Yeah. You know, there's there's so many trade-offs in life about everything. And yeah. the, and yes, it did do that. And, and the ironies never cease. And, and they ended up becoming characters in this book that gives us a story to tell, you know, about something that otherwise a lot of people wouldn't even take interest in. So there's that. But we can't be happy with them because of all the agencies in the government. That is the one that certainly is one of the top few that should be able that that we are depending upon to raise awareness about limits to growth and the option frankly to growth as well the steady state economy and and degrowth even because it's that type of science that they should be most familiar with and and that is most relevant to them it's more relevant to them and the mission of that agency than just about any other one. You know, there's the EPA and there are other natural resource agencies, the Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Forest Service, Park Service, and Natural Resource Conservation Service. But none of them, frankly, are doing anything to raise this awareness that we need so badly. And so, yeah, I'm able to do it full time now, but with a tiny little nonprofit, Cassie, and I uh, just have don't have uh, nearly the leverage that, say, a, an agency director should be using toward this end of speaking truth to power about limits to growth. 
Well, kind of wrapping up, let me ask you a couple things about the book. It's been known for a while that you are writing this book. So I'm guessing that some of the uh, arch villains that you write about have been aware of it. Are, are there men in black uh, that have been following you around? And uh, have you been worried about your uh, your welfare and whether you were going to live to see another day? <laughs> well, you know, it, the, it, the tentacles of the economic hitmen out there, what, what do we really know? But no, I'm not, I'm not too worried about them. You know, I do recall some of those earlier chiefs at the, toward the beginning of my career, you know, they, a few of them said, you know, check, you're right about this. You're just ahead of your time in terms of analyzing it so thoroughly and, and then communicating about it so thoroughly and, and frequently and so on. And the sense I got from them was that, well, okay, then we're going to address, we're going to start addressing this at some point in my civil service career for sure. If not in a few, if not in a few months or a few years, <laughs> it'll be sometime in my career. But no, it went the other direction. The, it seemed like the, the likelihood of us as an agency going there, if you will, decreased during the duration of my career instead of increase. Wow. That's yeah. very alarming. Yeah. So, but I, things, things come and go. And uh, I'm pretty sure that the wave of the future is for uh, widespread recognition and discussion of limits to growth and uh, some of the hard choices that society will have to make if it wants to have wildlife and, ecological integrity and a stabilized climate and large stocks of potable water and a lot of agricultural surplus and much less, you know, green space and solitude and, and uh, uh, reasonable levels of traffic congestion and, and uh, the stresses that come with too much crowding and uh, too much of an ecological footprint both domestically and in international affairs. Yeah, seems like something we shouldn't be running away from. So if someone wants the book, can they actually order a hard copy today? You can order one. You go online, steadystate.org, and there's three ways of going about it, basically. The one that, that we like to see the most is you join Cassie, and then you get one of our books. You know, we've published six books now at the Steady State Press. That's our uh, imprint at Cassie. And you can select one of those as uh, your membership gift. So you can get this book just for free, just for joining Cassie, yeah, which costs, right. costs you a little bit. That's a no-brainer. Why would anyone not do that? Yeah. yeah. Um, but if they want a Kindle edition or something like that, that's one of the options, I think, right? Well, that's coming. Uh, the uh, ebook should be out by the end of November. And then people can still do it the old-fashioned way and send us a check, and, mm -hmm. and we will mail them the book if they're in the USA. So uh, as I mentioned uh, at the start, we're talking on November 7th, and this is so hot off the presses that it's not on Amazon today. No. I hate to see somebody go to Amazon, so please... Right. Please don't order it from Amazon, but yeah, but it'll be on Amazon soon, I'm sure. Yeah, it'll be on Amazon in about two weeks. Okay, uh, there's some other things people can do at SteadyState.org. A lot of really good uh, essays that people could 
explore to educate themselves. You, uh, Herman Daly, is probably one of the the most brilliant writers about limits to growth and uh, uh, ecological sanity. And uh, you've long partnered with Herman before we lost him. And so there's a number of good ways to get at Herman Daly's writing there. There's also the position statement. So the what's Cassie that? position statement is designed especially to refute that that win-win rhetoric that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. And we've got about uh, 16,000 signatures on that now and about 250 organizational endorsements. And some of the top conservation scientists and frankly, uh, a lot of top name economists, not your run-of-the-mill Chicago School neoclassical economists, but we have uh, one Nobel Prize winner economist that has signed it and a lot of leading ecological economists, of course. Anybody can sign it. Steadystate.org. It's big, big blue button at the bottom of the page. Sign the position. Yep. So check it out. Get the book. It's a great read. Thanks for writing it, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Well, don't forget to uh, share and follow this podcast. And remember, I'm hosting it because I'm running for president of the United States as the only candidate, as far as I know. If I'm not the only candidate, let me know if, there, if there's another candidate out there who is, instead of delivering your children a dead planet, promising them a bright future. To do that, you have got to be promising no more chasing that uh, endless GDP growth myth that we've been chasing for way too long. So visit DaveThePlanet2024.com to explore, subscribe, donate, and volunteer. Thanks for watching or listening.